tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube, and hopefully other uh, podcast platforms where you might be looking for them. Uh, if you want to keep these lectures coming and make them economically feasible to continue, please look at my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining, and the link is in the description. So I've already done a long series of lectures dealing with the Middle Ages, and at some point I might go back and uh, revisit some medieval topics that I didn't cover. But at this point, I want to start discussing uh, how the Western world became modern. What are the dramatic changes in the 14 and 1500s that ended what we customarily call the Middle Ages? Uh, so there are several things I'll probably talk about at some point. Luther and the Reformation, uh, the Inquisition, witch hunting, uh, the Renaissance, and so on. Uh, but first, at this point, I want to talk about Columbus uh, and the beginning of the European invasion of the Americas uh, so that I can have that out there in time for Columbus Day, which is coming in, in a few weeks. So uh, Columbus has long been an icon and a symbol for America, Americans, at other times for Roman Catholics, Italian Americans, uh, and now he's become a figure of a lot of controversy, which maybe I'll discuss a little bit uh, towards towards the end of the lecture. Uh, but he's he's kind of come under attack, and uh, again because he is a symbol, uh, and you might say there there are sort of two faces of Columbus, uh, the the adventurous explorer, the hero, the sort of proto-modern man, and the kind of genocidal maniac. Uh, and neither of these pictures of Columbus is entirely true. Uh, the man himself is enigmatic. Uh, much like I said of Jesus when I discussed the historical Jesus, uh, it's hard to pin down precisely what Columbus was really up to and what he really thought and why he did what he did, although there is a lot more documentation about Columbus from his own life and even his own words than we have uh, about Jesus. Nonetheless, he was enigmatic partly intentionally. He was uh, a slippery and evasive individual uh, who didn't let on easily exactly who he was or what he was doing uh, and why. and. He did things that no one had done before, and they had enormous reverberating impacts over the ensuing 525 years uh, since he first landed uh, in America. It was, it was you know, five, 525 years ago next month. And so it's very hard to strip away everything that we know about the ensuing events the European incursions and conquests into the Americas, the creation of new societies and new republics here uh, in America, and basically all of world history since that time, uh, which all of which can be traced in some way or other to Columbus and his voyages. Okay, 
So let's say we try to uh, put our associations with Columbus and the sort of icon of Columbus that we're familiar with aside and try to understand as best we can who this person was, what he did, and why, and then consider what the results and impacts were. So I'm going to talk some about Columbus himself first, then about his voyages, and then I'll discuss a little bit what unfolded as a result of his momentous landing in the Western Hemisphere. And, uh, and if there's time, I'll see how long it takes, but if there's time, I might get into uh, the, the Spanish uh, invasion and conquest of much of the Americas that followed after Columbus uh, had died. Okay, so first of all, to understand why Columbus did what he did, we have to understand the state of Iberia, of Spain and Portugal, in 1492, the time when he embarked on his first voyage. So, as I've mentioned before, through the Middle Ages, through most of the Middle Ages, Iberia, which is Spain and Portugal, what we now know as Spain and Portugal, was mostly under Islamic rule, right? It was ruled by a series of mostly North African Muslim uh, dynasties. And over the course of the later Middle Ages, from basically the 11th century up to the 1400s, it was gradually, in a very piecemeal, back-and-forth way, it was gradually reconquered by Christian states that organized along the northern frontier of Spain and slowly uh, raided and conquered little by little southward through the peninsula. And as they did so, they slowly consolidated into larger states and kingdoms. By the 1400s, the largest and most powerful of these Christian states was Castile. Uh, however, there also was Navarre, the small Basque kingdom in the north, Catalonia uh, under the so-called Kingdom of Aragon in the east, and Portugal in the west, on the west coast. And the final holdout Islamic kingdom still hanging on to a southern foothold in the southern mountains of Spain was Granada, right? So these are the five kingdoms that you would have found in Spain uh, or in Iberia in the 1400s. Castile, Aragon, Navarre, Portugal, and Granada, the one uh, holdout Muslim emirate. As you may know, uh, in the 1460s, the Queen of Castile, Isabella, and the King of Aragon, Ferdinand, married and formed a political alliance. So you now have uh, sort of two conjoined kingdoms cooperating together under these two so-called Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. And that laid the foundation for what we now know as, as Spain, right? This, this joining together, this alliance of Castile and Aragon. And these rulers, Ferdinand and Isabella, decided to cooperate in a concerted attempt to finally conquer the last Muslim kingdom in Spain, at Granada. 
And Granada falls after a long siege in 1492, and the last Muslim ruler agrees peaceably to withdraw to Africa. So in 1492, the reconquest is finally over, right? This long uh, quest to take Iberia back from the Muslim states is done. So that's an impressive success, but at the same time, it now puts Ferdinand and Isabella in a new sort of dilemma. Uh, for one thing, there's the question of what do we do now? Right? We've organized these tremendous armies and built up these huge treasuries and consolidated these uh, new royal states around the crown with the goal of defeating the Muslim, uh, the Muslim emir. And now it's done. So now what do we do with all these soldiers and all this money? Uh, where do we go next? Right? Uh, one natural idea of what to do next was possibly to cross over uh, over the sea in, and continue the reconquest into North Africa. The problem for Ferdinand and Isabella was that Portugal had already started doing this. They had already built up a navy and started taking footholds on the North African coast. So this uh, sort of compounded the risk and the expense of trying to undertake such, a, uh, such an expedition to start conquering down into Africa. So they're not too enthusiastic about this idea. The second dilemma that Ferdinand and Isabella have to face is the fact that they are devout Catholic monarchs who have derived much of their legitimacy and authority from their commitment to Christianity, and yet they now have <clears throat> huge non-Christian populations under their rule. They have uh, hundreds of thousands of Muslim subjects. Uh, they have to decide what to do with these Muslim subjects, whether to allow them to remain as Muslims and practice Islam, force them to convert, force them to leave. And they also have a smaller group of uh, Jewish subjects as well. So by 1492, there were still around 80,000 Jews uh, in Spain. So much shrunken from what it used to be under Muslim rule, but still uh, a, a noticeable population of Jews in Spain. Ferdinand and Isabella might have simply uh, ignored this and allowed these Jews to uh, remain in Spain, but the problem was that in addition to these remaining 80,000 Jews, there were also many conversos, meaning uh, ex-Jews who had converted to Christianity or whose ancestors had converted to Christianity. And once in a while, some of these conversos would actually revert and go back to Judaism and rejoin the Jewish community. And as long as there were still those 80,000 Jews remaining in Spain, there was always that possibility, or that you might say that temptation, for conversos to go back to Judaism, right? So this was this was a big threat that these Jews in Spain uh, presented, and Isabella in particular considered this a huge problem, because again she was a devout Catholic, and in her view, if someone had been baptized as a Christian but then abjured the faith and went back to Judaism. That was heresy, it was a mortal sin, and you were going to hell. Uh, so she considered this a big problem, that there were still Jews and that there were still reconversions going on uh, in, in Spain. Okay, 
And these are among the central reasons why uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, shortly after they successfully captured Granada, they issued an expulsion order, which actually, in their view, it was not an expulsion order, but a conversion order, ordering all remaining Jews in Spain to convert to Christianity or else leave within about 60 days. So it was, uh, it was very sudden and it was very, uh, you know, traumatic for, for this remaining Jewish community. Uh, Ferdinand and Isabella generally expected that uh, the remaining Jews would simply convert and accept Christianity. But in fact, only around half or so did so. And the other half, around 40,000 or so roughly, instead left, you know, chose to remain loyal to Judaism and left Spain. And of those who remained and converted, many of them actually remained secretly loyal to Judaism. So this, uh, you know, didn't really solve uh, Isabella's problem. Okay, now you can probably guess this is the this is the same situation that that then gave rise to the Inquisition, right? A uh, a legal court specifically dedicated to investigating and punishing heresy uh, in in Spain. So this same situation and same set of dilemmas that Ferdinand and Isabella were facing in 1492 also uh, made Columbus's proposal appealing to them. Okay, so who is Columbus and what was he proposing? Okay, as I said, we don't know very much about Columbus and his life before 1492. We know a little bit but he himself was very cagey and the recorded facts from his own lifetime are often vague or contradictory. The sources about Columbus are pretty consistent in saying that he came from the Italian city of Genoa, right, which was a northern Italian maritime port uh, and one of the main rivals to, to Venice as the sort of Italian naval power on the Mediterranean. So he probably, uh, he may have been born in Genoa, we don't know for sure, but he grew up in Genoa and he probably was exposed to mariners and maritime merchants in Genoa in his upbringing. When he was a teenager, he started engaging as a sailor and a navigator, mainly on Portuguese voyages, right? So Venice and Genoa were sort of the old maritime powers on the Mediterranean. But by the mid-1400s, Portugal was really the new rising naval power on the Atlantic. And so uh, Columbus got extensive experience as a mariner uh, trained by Portuguese captains, right? So that was, that was most of his real uh, training and education in navigation and geography was with the Portuguese and probably some of that career was with Portuguese pirates and privateers as well as commercial uh, merchants. So that's about as much as we can say with confidence about Columbus's background. When Columbus himself was asked about who he was and where he came from, he would simply say, Vine de nada. I came from nothing. He never gave an explanation of his own background. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his ancestors were. We don't know if Columbus was his real name. 
Uh, there's no early enough record confirming that that was his name by birth. And in fact, he sailed early in his career with a Portuguese pir pirate with the name uh, Columbus, or the Portuguese equivalent of the name Columbus. And he may have adopted the name at that time as a way of distancing himself from whatever his actual family or background was. Okay. So the fact that he is, first of all, uh, a mystery and an enigma in terms of his his ancestry and his precise upbringing uh, has opened the door for a lot of speculation. And there have been various sort of theories, usually fairly thin theories, that maybe he was really Portuguese or maybe he was really Greek. Um, but at the time, he people around him said he was from Genoa and he was uh, an Italian from Genoa. There is a theory that has gained a, a lot of traction in recent years and that actually is comparatively well supported that Columbus was a converso or a crypto Jew, that he himself came from a Jewish ancestry, uh, that he hid this. This is part of why he would not talk about his background and his ancestry was that he, he may have come from a Jewish uh, ancestry and that that is part of why he took up the bizarre mission that he did. Uh, so this uh, idea that Columbus was either a crypto-Jew or a converso was put forward by a number of scholars, including Simon Wiesenthal, over the years. And it's recently been taken up by a Spanish scholar, Estelle uh, Irizarry, who has examined Columbus's r letters and writings. And for one thing, she finds that uh, looking at his phrasing uh, and, and words that he uses characteristically in his writings, he clearly was a native speaker of Catalan, right? Which is the uh, the Romance language spoken in Catalonia, or what was then the Kingdom of Aragon, right? And she argues that he could not have been uh, a native speaker of Italian, but instead he was a native speaker of Catalan. That was his main language. His words and his phrasing uh, reflected knowledge of Catalan and also of Ladino, which was the specifically Jewish form of Spanish, the sort of Judeo-Spanish language spoken in Spain in the Middle Ages. Uh, he uses particular uh, unusual punctuation marks. He separated phrases in his sentences using slash marks, which also is characteristic of Catalan. And uh, he makes a number of religious references uh, to the Old Testament in his writings. He seems very concerned with the prophet Isaiah. And he, there are a, there's a series of surviving letters that Columbus wrote to his son which uh, are marked with the Hebrew letters bet hey. Uh, at the they have a heading with these this Hebrew uh, this Hebrew acronym bet hey, which uh, stands for beitzrat Hashem, which is a common Hebrew phrase that uh, Jews and crypto Jews at that time used in their messages to fellow Jews. Uh, and uh, specifically that those letters, uh, Bete, were uh, commonly written on uh, messages that crypto-Jews wrote to fellow crypto-Jews to mark the message as secret uh, and only to be shared with other Jews. So, 
you know, if we were talking about someone much later in the late 1500s or the 1600s, it might not be too surprising to see a Gentile Christian, you know, experimenting with Hebrew phrases and Hebrew letters, sort of imitating what they knew of Judaism. But in the 1400s, you know, this is very strong evidence that Columbus considered himself and his children to be to be Jews. Now, we should uh, note that that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't a Christian, right? So these categories of Jew, crypto-Jew, converso were very fuzzy. You know, there were people who, uh, there were converts who considered themselves Christian and who embraced uh, Christianity and the gospel, but also still considered themselves to be Jews because they were Jews by ancestry and by birth. And you could kind of go back and forth or sort of, uh, you know, ride, uh, straddle the line, you could say, uh, between what we would consider to be a Jew and, and a Christian. So it's hard to say exactly what Columbus's religious uh, beliefs were or what his exact identity was, but there is pretty good evidence that he came from a Jewish background. Okay, so after uh, a period of voyaging around, mainly with Portuguese voyagers, Columbus began uh, inviting himself to various royal courts in Europe and pitching an idea, a scheme. And his main target for this scheme was the crown of Portugal, which repeatedly turned him down. Uh, and so he also began bringing this idea to the court of Ferdinand and Isabella in Cordoba. And a couple of times in between about 1489 and 92, a couple of times he was able to get audiences with Ferdinand and Isabella in order to pitch his idea. So what was this idea? You've probably heard it. It was to take a few ships and simply sail to the west until he uh, circumnavigated the globe and landed in the east, right? So he was proposing uh, sailing west to reach Asia, right? Japan, China, India. And this was an appealing idea for a number of reasons. Uh, the Portuguese were also trying to sail to Asia, right? That's part of why they kept uh, voyaging farther and farther down the coast of Africa, was they were hoping to get around and over to Asia. And this was uh, appealing for economic reasons. There was a lot of lucrative trade to be had with Asia and for religious reasons, okay? If, if Spain or Portugal was able to uh, find a sea route to Asia, then they would not have to trade through Constantinople and they would not have to trade with the Turks, right, the Muslim Turks who had captured Constantinople in 1453. So there was this uh, sort of geopolitical and religious uh, desire to open up direct sea trade with, with Asia. So Columbus knows that this is what a lot of the crowned heads of Europe are hoping to, to find. And he puts forward this idea I can, that I can sail uh, to the west, just give me some ships, a little money, give me permission to sail uh, your flag, and I will reach Asia. Well, Columbus found some supporters and sympathizers for this idea 
around the court of Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. And these supporters mainly were Franciscans, right? Franciscan uh, friars who uh, believed it was their mission to spread the gospel throughout the world, to carry this sort of simple, plain message of the gospel to everybody. And they very much liked this idea of trying to get to the East and to bring Christianity to the East, along with uh, opening up trade. The main opponents and critics of Columbus's idea were mainly Dominicans, right? And Dominicans were uh, sort of friendly rivals of the Franciscans, who tended to be more learned, more educated, uh, and they, they, they were the order that ran the universities. So Columbus finds that he has supporters and sympathizers among the Franciscans, and he has opponents among the Dominicans. And he has to somehow, uh, you know, thread this needle and persuade Ferdinand and Isabella to, uh, to give him patronage and support his voyage. Okay. The Dominicans at Fer uh, Ferdinand and Isabella's court argued that Columbus's idea was ridiculous and that it could never work. But Columbus defended it and uh, promised that he could reach Asia. The Dominicans were right and Columbus was wrong. Okay, why were the Dominicans right and why was Columbus wrong? Well, you may have heard the myth, you know, we've, we've all heard the myth at some point, that people before Columbus thought that the earth was flat and Columbus argued that the earth was round. Uh, this is not true. This is false. Uh, everyone in the Middle Ages knew that the Earth was round. That was just common knowledge. It had been demonstrated experimentally by uh, ancient Greek philosophers. So it was part of the heritage of ancient knowledge. And it was common sense. People could see all the time. You know, the, when, when ships go out uh, to sea, you see them slowly sink below the horizon. You know, the, people saw things all the time, every day, that confirmed this, this uh, just common knowledge that the Earth was a globe. Okay, So that was not what the argument was, was about. Everyone in 1492 at the Spanish court knew that the Earth was round. The question was, how big is it? Okay, so ancient Greek philosophers had calculated using uh, astronomical measurements and measurements of the sun. They had calculated an estimate of how big the Earth was, and we can say today their estimate was very close to correct. They were just about right. Um, Columbus, however, put forward an argument about the units of measure that these Greek philosophers like Eratosthenes were using. And he argued that they were much smaller than people thought, and that, in fact, uh, the, the, sort of, uh, the units that they were using were small enough such that the Earth was uh, you know, only a few thousand miles wide, and that if he sailed out from uh, Spain onto the, onto the ocean, it would only be a few thousand miles till he got over to China, basically. 
the Dominicans listened to this and said, this guy is crazy. He's completely off his rocker. We know roughly what these Greek units of measure were. Uh, we've confirmed uh, all of these measurements. The Earth is much bigger than that. And there's no way he could sail out from Europe and make it all the way around to Asia. It would take years. It, they would run out of supplies. They'd never make it that far. Uh, and the Dominicans were correct. Okay, the Dominicans were correct that there was absolutely no sailing ship in the world at that time that could survive and hold out its supplies for so long to make it all the way around the globe. Okay, so Columbus was wrong and the Dominican critics were right. And they had plenty of good information to back up their argument, demonstrating that Columbus was, uh, you know, his argument was a, a crank argument. Okay, so what happened? Well, you know, Ferdinand and Isabella repeatedly turned Columbus away and said, you know, this sounds really nice, but our advisors tell us you're a kook. And they repeatedly said no. But finally, in 1492, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella again turned Columbus down. He was on his way out of Cordoba, ready to leave Spain and go somewhere else to look for uh, some other possible supporter for his crazy notion. But before he got out of the city, messengers from Queen Isabella caught up with him and said, wait, the queen has changed her mind and she has decided she will offer you patronage, money, uh, and ships to try your voyage. Okay, so this is what ended up happening. Now there are two questions we can consider here, seeing that this is the basic turn of events that led to Columbus's voyage. One is, did Columbus really believe what he was saying? You know, it's, it's hard to imagine. If Columbus was such an experienced mariner uh, and had been so well trained by uh, the Portuguese, and we know from his voyages that he was an extremely skilled and knowledgeable mariner. Could he, how could he have possibly believed this crank idea he was putting forward? Well, uh, the historian D.A. Brading has put forward uh, an argument, or at least implied an argument, that Columbus uh, probably didn't really believe the argument he was saying, uh, and that, in fact, he was... Uh, being shrewd and strategic, to put it generously. Uh, rather, if you had been in certain Portuguese territories, like the Azores in the 1400s, then you would know that occasionally uh, strange objects, like strange uh, boats and strange uh, sculpted statues, would occasionally wash up on these Portuguese shores uh, that looked unlike anything that they had ever seen and that seemed as if they must come from some unknown faraway land. Uh, you probably also knew that according to the ancient scholars, ancient Greek scholars, there were sort of mysterious long-lost islands far out to the west, places like uh, Atlantis and, and others, and many medieval maps included these sort of mythical islands out in the Atlantic. Uh, there's also a good chance that Columbus had sailed with Portuguese mariners uh, into northern Europe, 
places like Britain and Scandinavia, where uh, mariners uh, widely were aware of the Vinland sagas, right? So the, the very old Norse sagas, which uh, claimed that at some point several hundred years earlier, some Viking voyagers had sailed far out to the west beyond Greenland and reached uh, a temperate land that they called Vinland, that they had settled there for some period of time, and then been driven out by the local people and withdrew back to, to Iceland and Scandinavia. So these are all facts that were around in the Atlantic maritime world that we can probably suppose Columbus had heard of. Uh, and most likely Columbus simply put two and two together and figured that there was something out there in the ocean to the west and that if he simply sailed continuously out to the west he was bound to find something, right? So all in all that's our most likely hypothesis for what Columbus was actually thinking when he pitched this idea. And similarly, we can figure that Isabella was probably thinking along similar lines, that most likely she knew that Columbus's argument about distances and reaching Asia was baloney, but that uh, it was a fairly low-risk investment. It would just be, you know, a few fairly cheap ships, a little bit of money, uh, the right to fly the uh, Castilian flag, and uh, it could have high returns if there, it was simply a, a gamble that was worth taking because there might be something out there worth finding. Now there's a further factor that, uh, that possibly uh, adds another dimension to what Columbus was doing and why. So it, he was telling the Franciscans and the uh, Catholic monarchs that he was going to get to Asia. Uh, was that really his goal? Did he really think that was going to happen? And if not, then why was he uh, doing this? Well, uh, as we said, there's a reasonable likelihood that Columbus himself came from a Jewish background. Uh, and most of the money that he raised, most of the investments that he got in his first voyage actually didn't come from the crown. The, the crown of Castile only contributed a little. Most of it actually came from Jewish and crypto-Jewish, or converso, uh, investors in Spain and neighboring countries. So that, that's actually where most of the monetary backing came from, and a large portion of the crew that he assembled for his first voyage. Around a third of the sailors in his crew were also Jewish or crypto-Jewish. So there seems to have been a, a, a sort of large uh, Jewish and converso uh, buy-in and support for Columbus's voyage. And the voyage was ready to sail by midsummer 1492. Yet they delayed and in fact declined to set sail until a particular day in August 1492, which was uh, the exact day that the conversion order set as the deadline for Jews to leave Spain if they didn't convert. So this is one reason to suppose that uh, Columbus or his backers or both uh, saw 
the voyage as having a Jewish significance and maybe hoped that it would find a land somewhere where the Jews could resettle after being expelled from Spain, right? So, so all in all, it seems as if the, the expulsion of Jews from Spain was a crucial context and, and motive for Columbus's uh, voyage into the West, okay? So this voyage sets out in, uh, in 1492. As I said, it has a, a sort of mixed heterogeneous crew, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, a significant fraction of them are Jewish or converso. Uh, and they voyage for about two months westward on the Atlantic. And by that point, it was getting it was getting to the point where Columbus had claimed they should be reaching Asia. And they still weren't seeing anything, and they were starting to seriously run out of supplies. So by the beginning of October, some of Columbus's crew are starting to discuss, they're having a lot of doubts, and they're starting to discuss the possibility of mutinying and forcing Columbus uh, to turn back. You know, and this is, it's a very serious situation when you consider that Columbus was setting forth with just three fairly small ships, right? Nothing like the enormous treasure fleet that Chinese voyagers uh, had sailed around in, in the 1400s. They, they were on a few small vessels that could only uh, carry a certain amount of supplies and that were vulnerable to storms. Uh, and th this was a, a very dangerous situation they were getting into as they continued to just sail out, possibly endlessly, into the ocean. So understandably, the crew is getting very anxious uh, and very desperate to sight land. And just when they're really about to mutiny uh, in October, uh, they do sight land one morning. And they make a landing in an island that almost surely is in what's now the Bahamas. Okay. And after they land, they encounter local people who belong to the, the Taino group. Uh, they're sometimes called Arawak, but actually the language uh, that they spoke was Arawak. The people were Taino. And... Uh, very quickly, Columbus uh, attacks small groups of Taino people and takes some captive with the purpose of trying to learn their language and trying to speak, teach them Spanish so that they can open up a line of communication with the local people. And this was a very you know, common, typical practice uh, in, in much of Europe and also in the New World, too, was to take people from different groups captive so that they can become... Uh, interpreters and uh, emissaries between groups. So once they have started uh, to build this channel of communication with the local Taino people, Columbus very quickly starts demanding goods from them. So he knows that he has reached this new land, which he claims to his crew is Asia, uh, you know, somewhere around Japan or the uh, Indonesia, the East Indies, uh, and he calls these people Indians or Indios, and he knows that 
it's very important for him to bring back something of value back to Spain in order to demonstrate that this crazy, you know, long, risky, expensive voyage was worth it, right? And there are various things that you can uh, get to show that this, uh, to show that this voyage was uh, remunerative enough to, uh, to be rewarded and repeated and followed up with more voyages. One of those things is human beings, right? So he, he takes some more people captive and intends to hold them as basically as slaves, right? The, the term he uses is servants, which, you know, was an ambiguous term that, that more or less included what we would call slavery, right? Forced uh, captive labor. So he takes some people to bring back to Spain as slaves. He takes uh, a few gemstones uh, and uh, a few exotic items like birds and feathers. Uh, but the main thing he really wants is gold, okay? And, and this is the pattern all through the Spanish conquest of the Americas, this very focused, single-minded quest for gold. Uh, okay, why gold? Well, it really was completely logical because gold was really the only material that was valuable enough in proportion to its size and weight that it would actually be worth it to fund these long, risky voyages back and forth across this ocean, right? If all you're finding is some nice tobacco, that's just not valuable enough to make it worth it to sail these thousands of miles across the sea. So that he really needs to get gold. The people in the Bahamas don't have a lot of gold. They, there is a little bit, and he trades for or seizes or steals various gold trinkets uh, small jewels, enough to basically form a sort of fist-sized wad of gold, which he then takes back onto his flagship and brings back to Spain. Okay, so, so when he uh, returns to Spain with his crew, he shows these exotic items like birds, he shows his fistful of gold, uh, and he claims that he's been to Asia right? And what he's able to show Ferdinand and Isabella isn't all that impressive, but at least it demonstrates that he's been somewhere completely new that might be worth exploring and uh, either trading with or colonizing. So Ferdinand and Isabella from that point agree to fund more voyages, right? And he, a few years later, he sets out on a second voyage, and subsequently he, uh, he embarks on a third and fourth voyage. These subsequent voyages are much bigger, right? He now is given enough money uh, for a large fleet uh, of serious, uh, you know, galleons and warships. He's given uh, populations, uh, small armies, uh, and populations of people to create permanent settlements and trading posts in this new land. So in these subsequent voyages in the 1490s and up to his fourth voyage in 1504, Columbus explores around the Caribbean islands. Uh, he goes to Hispaniola, uh, you know, the, the country that's now the Dominican Republic and Haiti. He goes to Cuba. He goes to various uh, smaller, lesser Antilles. And he also explores along the northern coast of South America, around what's now Venezuela and Colombia, right? He gives the name to Venezuela. And he sails along the Caribbean coast of 
Central America. So he goes all around the Caribbean basin, and as he does so, he sets down uh, sort of semi-permanent settlements or outposts of Europeans, mostly European men. And he takes sort of trusted men and puts them in charge of these small uh, settlements and outposts. Now, Columbus is a truly brilliant uh, mariner and navigator and explorer. He is not a good administrator. Uh, and there is something of, you might say, a mismatch in mentalities that leads to a lot of disasters in Columbus's voyages. So Columbus, uh, his training, remember, is Portuguese, right? And the Portuguese strategy when they traded and explored uh, was to create small fortified outposts that can facilitate trade, right? Portugal has a very small population, uh, and they basically need to uh, use their labor power as efficiently as they can. So they set up small protected fortresses, usually with the approval and support of local people, and they conduct trade and missionizing from those outposts, right? And this is the sort of approach that Columbus seems to want to, to take, right? He does steal, he does kidnap people, uh, but he basically, his uh, basic strategy is to explore, create small outposts, and try to get along with and trade with surrounding people. But most of the men under his command that he's... Uh, putting at these outposts are mostly Spanish, right? And the Spanish mentality and Spanish practices were very different. Uh, different in a way that would really uh, set the Spanish conquest of the Americas in a completely different direction. So the Spanish were coming out of the recent experience of the reconquest, right? And the recapturing of Granada, right? So their mentality is when you encounter a new people who are not Christian, Right? As, the, as the emirate of Cordoba was not Christian, you use force to subjugate them and you break all resistance. Right, uh, So they were much more militaristic and they were much more focused on using overwhelming force and, and using overwhelming numbers to break down resistance and capture territory. So what tends to happen is when Columbus leaves behind these outposts, they, the the men and the commanders of these outposts tend to violently and often viciously attack the, the local people to demand gold and to demand uh, labor, right? So uh, they take whatever uh, gold or other valuable materials they can get, and once those run out, they then force people to mine and find more precious metals and more gemstones, etc. Uh, and they... Uh, often massacre the leaders of these various societies. And there are a lot of descriptions, Spanish descriptions, of the atrocities committed by these early uh, conquistadores, as they were called, these early settlers and conquerors in America. Okay, it was very common to round up the sort of upper caste and leaders of towns and cities and kill them in brutal ways by burning, uh, hanging. Uh, there was extensive torture and rape. 
often people who resisted or tried to escape these uh, Spanish conquerors would be chased into the forest by uh, dogs. Uh, so the the Spanish had hunting dogs, right? A a a kind of invention of of European society that was unfamiliar in the Americas, and they would use this to their advantage to basically chase down and often, uh, you know, very viciously torture or kill resistors. Now. Uh, This sort of conduct, it's very hard to pin down exactly what Columbus's own personal involvement was in this, these sorts of atrocities. It seems as if generally they happened when Columbus himself wasn't around. There was a kind of home alone effect where when Columbus, uh, you know, the, the admiral or the governor, as he, which was the title that Isabella eventually gave him, when he wasn't there, uh, this sort of violence happened, you know, full bore, kind of unrestrained. When Columbus was around, it seems that sometimes he said some disapproving things and tried to restrain it, uh, but other times he approved, or at least acquiesced, in this kind of violence. And there's a famous passage where one of Columbus's lieutenants says, uh, you know, we captured some natives, Columbus gave one of the women to me, uh, meaning he sort of gave permission for this lieutenant to take this woman captive, and he then raped her, right? So this is one of the documentary sources we have that show that at least sometimes Columbus knew of and approved of uh, violence, you know, kidnapping, rape. Uh, and also he often oversaw severe violent punishments of people who in some way resisted uh, Spanish domination. Uh, Again, it's, it's very hard to pin this down exactly. A lot of this is often exaggerated because sometimes people who want to attack Columbus will take later accounts, uh, for example, from Bartolomé de las Casas, who I'll talk about later, who describe the, the terrible brutality of these Spanish conquerors. And they'll say, this is what Columbus did, when in fact las Casas himself doesn't say anything about Columbus. Uh, th these are things that other people did, usually later, after Columbus was already dead. So there's a lot of projection that'll often go on, where people will say, look at, look at these horrible brutalities, this is all Columbus is doing. When really, it's, there's, there's not so much evidence telling us exactly what Columbus himself did and approved of. However, uh, in 2006, uh, an official report was discovered in... Uh, the archives of a city in Spain called Simancas, where Columbus was basically uh, put on trial in absentia. And we have some testimony about exactly the sort of things Columbus did. So after Colum during Columbus's third voyage, actually, he is uh, carrying the title of governor of the Indies. So he is technically the representative of the crown in charge of these settlements in the Indies. But various of his lieutenants uh, who see the sort of chaos and brutality and kind of mayhem going on in these Spanish colonies uh, join together 
and uh, send a message to the crown saying, we reject Columbus's authority, we're removing him from power. He's, he's a totally untrustworthy, ineffective governor. And he's allowed this sort of violence and brutality to go on. And so the crown sends uh, an emissary to the Indies, strips Columbus of his title of governor, right? So relieves him of that authority and basically holds a trial in absentia that collects testimony about, about Columbus's doings in America. And this testimony, it doesn't find that Columbus sort of went on wanton rampages, uh, massacring people, but it does say that he inflicted very harsh, uh, often humiliating and violent punishments against those who resisted Spanish rule and against those who in some way insulted him personally, right? And this is a pattern that we see with Columbus that it seems he was very egotistical. He was very concerned about his image and his uh, sort of personal dignity. And he reportedly had a woman's uh, tongue cut out who said that Columbus was of low birth. Okay, so, you know, we can infer there was some kind of weird sensitivity here about his birth, which, you know, he never talked about. Um, and that shows up in the way that he treated colonists and natives in these colonies. And I should point out, too, that this, this uh, report, which was discovered in 2006, it does confirm that Columbus uh, carried out, you know, harsh, brutal, violent punishments that were considered uh, beyond the pale at the time. Right, so the, his behavior was not considered acceptable by even by all Europeans at the time, and that this sort of violence and brutality was visited both upon indigenous people and upon European colonists. Right, so so it doesn't make sense as some people will sometimes do. It doesn't make sense to say, oh, Columbus was uh, committed genocide. You know, he didn't go around saying, I want to wipe out this or that ethnic group. He just went around basically. Uh, you know, unleashing violence and brutality upon all sorts of people, regardless of whether they were European or indigenous. Okay. So it's sort of, you know, I think it's clear that it's a misuse of the term to say that Columbus is somehow guilty of, of genocide. He didn't systematically try to kill people in order to uh, destroy any particular group. Rather, he wanted to use their labor to get what he wanted, which was power, wealth, prestige, and specifically gold, right? And he was willing to, to use, you know, violence and repression to get gold. Now, that being said, uh, Columbus's landings in America certainly did lead to mass death, okay? The population of Hispaniola, uh, the main island that, that Columbus colonized, was almost wiped out within a few decades. Uh, the larger island of Cuba had a population of around 2 million uh, before 1492. Within a few generations, by the you know, late 1500s, its population had dropped to only 80,000. So we're talking about the loss of more than 90% of the population of Cuba. And similar uh, mass death happened all over the Caribbean. There are some islands like Barbados that we know had indigenous inhabitants before the Spanish showed up. And they, as far as we know, they all died, right? So we see complete wipeout 
of some peoples and nations in the Caribbean after this Spanish uh, arrival. However, violence was not the main reason. Right? The main reason why this mass die-off happened was not because Columbus or his lieutenants went around saying, let's kill everyone. You know, that was contrary to their goals. Rather, it was because of diseases. It was something that happened completely unexpectedly and unintentionally and that the Spanish didn't know how to respond to. Nobody at the time knew uh, what, how to respond to. Okay, so it was, it was disease, repeated disease outbreaks that wiped out most of the population of the West Indies and Central America between 1492 and about 1560 or so. Why did this happen? Well, uh, some of you might have heard some of this argument from, uh, from Jared Diamond and Guns, Germs, and Steel, but it actually goes back more so to the scholar Alfred Crosby, who's sort of the first uh, person to, to examine these disease epidemics and why and how they happened. So the Europeans, when they showed up in the West Indies, were covered in pathogens that the American people had never encountered and had no immune resistance to at all. Uh, you know, why did, why did it happen this way? Well, if you look at where the Europeans were coming from, they were coming from Europe, which was part of Eurasia, this very, you know, large continent that uh, runs for thousands and thousands of miles east-west and has many large urban centers, right? Many densely packed human populations in all sorts of cities that are all connected by trade and travel, running, you know, all the way from Portugal to Korea. And uh, there was all kinds of uh, uh, exchange of, of food and materials and goods and germs back and forth among these far-flung populations through Eurasia and much of Africa. Furthermore, Eurasia and Africa had many domesticated animals, right? There were many species of animals that had been domesticated and that lived in close communion with human beings. So you had people riding around on horses. Uh, you had people with chickens and dogs and pigs in their homes. You had people raising cattle and goats and sheep and so forth. And all of this, this uh, Eurasia was sort of a, a massive civilization, multi-species civilization, which was a huge incubator of bacteria and viruses that could quickly change and spread and move and jump among these different animals and human beings. So over time, people in Eurasia had to build up resistances to these various diseases, you know, smallpox and cowpox and, uh, and typhus and influenza. Uh, you, by the time you were an adult, you, you had been exposed to all sorts of pathogens. You carried many of them in your body and on your body and you had to be resistant to them. This was not true in the Americas, or to a much lesser degree. In the Americas, you had uh, continents running mainly north-south. There was a lot less travel and trade back and forth among the different cities and societies in the Americas because the climates were all very different and the terrain was very different. So you had more localized 
populations and you had far fewer domesticated animals. It just happens that there weren't indigenous horses or cattle or pigs. Uh, the main domesticated animals were some dogs and llamas, right? Llamas were domesticated as pack animals in South America. But that was basically it. So you had these populations that hadn't been raised in these disease incubators like Europeans had. So when, they, when the Europeans land in the Americas, it almost immediately touches off uh, massive epidemics, mainly of smallpox, uh, but also other diseases that travel together uh, sort of in, in teams or in packets, much like the Black Death had in, in Europe in the 1300s. Uh, and you get uh, you know, influenza, typhus, bubonic plague, all of these pathogens moving often in tandem uh, much faster than the Europeans themselves did. And this is actually uh, the biggest reason why, it's the number one reason why Europeans were able to conquer so much of the Americas so quickly. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, when the Spanish arrived in the, in the Inca Empire in the Andes, uh, smallpox had already broken out before they got there and was already destabilizing the empire before the Spanish even arrived on the scene, right? So these diseases uh, paved the way for European uh, incursions. Okay, so that just gives you a little sense of how, how the Spanish conquest began during Columbus's own lifetime. And later I'll talk more about how it then proceeded from the West Indies into Mexico and South America. Uh, but the, 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 this main force, uh, this, this sort of first wave of invasion, really was the diseases, the pathogens, and that began from Columbus. Okay, so Columbus was formally removed from his position as governor. Uh, he was then arrested by Spanish emissaries and sent back to Spain in chains in 1500. Uh, however, after he arrived, uh, King Ferdinand pardoned him and allowed him to gather funds and investors to go on a fourth voyage in 1504. So although he had been, uh, he'd been arrested and was briefly imprisoned, he was pardoned and made yet another voyage to the Americas. So, uh, you know, th and th this should put paid to the notion that you'll sometimes hear that, well, uh, you know, we shouldn't judge Columbus because he, he was normal by the standards of his time. Uh, that's not true. There was great dispute and disagreement over what was acceptable behavior for a European explorer and colonizer at that time. And according to many people in, in authority, Columbus's actions had been shameful and unacceptable. Uh, so he was, uh, he was briefly imprisoned but pardoned. He made one more voyage to the Americas, uh, and he died in 1506, right? so 14 years after his first voyage. In his last several years, between 1501 and 1506, Columbus engaged in a long series of legal disputes over his rights to various titles and profits from the Spanish voyages to America. Uh, he had been stripped of the title of governor, and so from the point of view of the crown, he now was no longer entitled to the uh, shares of profits 
coming from these European voyages, right? Since since he had been uh, since he'd been stripped of his title, he was no longer he could no longer claim to these favors that had been granted to him in his original agreement with Ferdinand and Isabella. Columbus disputed this uh, and argued that those entitlements were separate from the title of governor, and he also argued that his uh, his other honorifics like Don. Uh, should still attach to him and to his heirs and successors, right? So again, we see Columbus is very insistent on defending his uh, status and his dignity, right? It was, it was you could say, uh, it was an obsession with him. He himself lost most of these disputes, but he, some victories were achieved later by his heirs, his, his sons and, and, his, and, his, and his heirs, did successfully argue that they should have shares of the money and territory that Spain was gaining in the New World, or in the, the Indies, as they called it. He continued to ins insist until his death that he had reached East Asia, right? So he still claimed that these lands he had encountered were uh, you know, either Japan or the Philippines or, or some sort of... Uh, East Indies. He never acknowledged, as many people at the time were arguing, that in fact this was a completely different and unknown land that Europeans had simply never uh, known about. And again we have to ask the question, did he really believe that or did he simply argue that out of, out of ego and out of uh, desire to confirm that he had fulfilled the promises that he had made to Ferdinand and Isabella, right? He had claimed to the Catholic monarchs that he would reach Asia, and he continued to maintain to the end of his days that he had done so, although it was increasingly clear that that was not the case. And it was never really plausible to begin with, you know, if you listen to the Dominicans. Uh, it simply happened that, the, you know, the Americas were there <laughs> to catch him before he sailed off for thousands and thousands of miles and ran out of supplies. And also in his final few years, he joined together with a friend of his who was a Carthusian monk and compiled uh, a book of prophecies. So he had always uh, been concerned about his son's religious education. And in his letters to his son and to his other family members, he had made clear that he wanted his son to pursue a thorough religious education, particularly in the scriptures, which was unusual at that time, until he turned 13, at which point he could then engage in business and in uh, navigation. So, you know, again, it's, it's suggestive that he was looking at this as, as a Jewish education, that he wanted his son to have a religious education until, until the age of maturity, which according to Jewish law is 13. And as part of this religious education, he compiled this very elaborate book of prophecies where he collected and commented on uh, prophetic passages in uh, the Bible. And specifically, he, he structured this book uh, so as to argue that, uh, that the end times were approaching, uh, the apocalypse was approaching, that his own voyages to America, by implication, were part of the end times, 
and were part of preparing the way for the apocalypse. You know, as I've said before, apocalyptic thinking is very common and widespread and comes up over and over again all through European history. And it seems from this book of prophecies that Columbus was also an apocalyptic thinker. He saw his voyages as furthering the quest for uh, the apocalypse and the second coming. And more specifically, uh, he, he arranged uh, prophecies predicting that uh, the gospel should be spread throughout the world, uh, that the Garden of Eden should be rediscovered, and that these were sort of initial steps towards the end times, which he had helped to accomplish that then there should be a last crusade and a final recapturing of Jerusalem for Christendom, and then a last emperor should be appointed. Okay, so a lot of this you can see echoes the thinking of the crusaders, that the, uh, the Christians must control Jerusalem in order for Christ to return to uh, the holy city, and that there should be a sort of final emperor who should be in a position to hand off authority over the human world to Christ, right? And it seems that, you know, Columbus saw himself as playing a role in bringing about the fulfillment of these prophecies, right? His voyages had helped to bring the gospel to the Indies. Uh, he possibly thought that his explorations of South America were uh, going to find the location of the Garden of Eden, and that uh, his voyages and the profits from his voyages would lead to a final crusade, and uh, they would be in some way led by the Spanish crown, maybe by Ferdinand, who would play the role of the sort of final world emperor. Okay, and this can seem awfully strange if we also think that Columbus was Jewish, but again, uh, it's the lines are very blurry and it seems very possible that there were conversos who still considered themselves Jews but who also converted and believed that their conversion was part of the end times right and was uh, leading the way towards the second coming so uh, why did Columbus turn to this sort of line of thinking? Well, it's not very unusual when people are old and they're looking towards, uh, you know, their decline and, and death to turn towards uh, religion or towards spiritual thinking. Uh, and also, it seems that Columbus was a very egotistical guy and that when he didn't, when he didn't get the kind of wealth and power and honor that he thought he deserved uh, from, from the crown, he built up, he instead built up a sort of mythic image of himself through prophecy and through the examination of, of scripture. He cast himself as this kind of world historical figure before he then finally died uh, in 1506, right? And it was after 1506 that uh, the first sort of real uh, incursions of Europeans into the interior of North and South America began, right? Columbus kind of paved the way in a very haphazard and 
uh, you know, bumbling and very violent way paved the way, but the real uh, conquests of the powerful urban civilizations of America came later, and I'll probably get to those uh, in a later lecture. So this is all, you know, things to have in mind when we consider uh, when we consider, consider Columbus today. You know, it's not so simple to pin down exactly what he did and why, or even, you know, who he was. Uh, and a lot of the results of his actions were disastrous, uh, but it's not clear how much he anticipated or intended many of those results of his actions. You know, uh, we should be wary of pinning everything on Columbus simply because he's been adopted as, as a kind of symbol. It was only in the 1700s, really, that Columbus became famous as a, as a, as a symbol and as a kind of historical hero. You know, between his, his death and about 250 years later, he was not all that prominent a figure. You know, Spanish people knew that he had begun the Spanish conquest of the Americas, but Anglo-Americans had no particular reason to care about him. He was not the discoverer of America. Everyone knew there were already people here before Columbus showed up. Uh, he was not the only European to, uh, to land in America. Uh, there had been Vikings here before. Uh, and there were others later, like Cabral, the Portuguese explorer, who completely separately and independently landed in Brazil uh, unexpectedly. So one can argue that even without Columbus, Europeans still eventually would have landed in the Americas, and it, it, very likely it would have been Portuguese explorers uh, if Columbus hadn't done it, uh, sort of beaten them to the punch. Yet in the 1700s, when these British-American colonies are beginning to form a sort of collective provincial identity and to assert their interests as against Parliament and as against the home government in Britain, they start to point to Columbus as the sort of prototypical colonist. And they start to call America Columbia, right? And they sometimes call themselves Colombians. And especially after the American Revolution, when Americans are trying to sort of assemble a national mythology instead of symbols, they invoke the name of Columbus. And hence you get things like the college, uh, King's College in New York, after the revolution gets renamed Columbia College, right? And you get uh, towns and cities named Columbus or, or Columbia. So he's adopted as a national symbol and then Later, uh, in the late 1800s, you have large-scale Catholic immigration, right? And people immigrating, especially from Ireland and Italy uh, and Germany, who are mostly Catholic and who are severely discriminated against and very often you know, excluded from towns and neighborhoods, excluded from professions, uh, violently attacked in many cases, you know, uh, a Catholic convent in, in Boston is burned down in 1836. Uh, you have this you know, very violent uh, repression of Catholics in America. And in response, certain Catholics, especially Italian-Americans, then adopt Columbus and cast Columbus as sort of the prototypical 
Italian Catholic voyager to America, like themselves. And you get the Knights of Columbus uh, organized in the late 1800s, and then you get Columbus Day in the 1930s, which is first invented and promoted by these Italian-American uh, organizations. Right? So when people point to Columbus as a symbol, initially it's, it's as this sort of prototypical American, and then it's as a kind of prototypical Catholic Italian American, right? And, and a sort of prototypical modern immigrant, right? A, a sort of brave, visionary individual who had voyaged out to you know, find a new life and find new opportunities in a new world. Right, which is how uh, immigrants like to see themselves and, and present themselves. Uh, the modern uh, backlash against Columbus and against Columbus Day, you, you know, tends to either completely overlook this, this history and just, you know, recast Columbus as a symbol of racism and uh, imperialism uh, and kind of holds at arm's length. Uh, this association with Italians and Italian Catholics who are just kind of, uh, you know, t totally erased or are, are just kind of cast as part of this, you know, oppressive white racist mass. Uh, so, uh, so we should remember that, you know, Columbus has uh, served many different symbolic purposes, right? Uh, to represent kind of what is, is best, uh, and most uh, inspiring about American life, uh, and also what is you know worst and most reviled, or what uh, has now been rejected as as repugnant in the eyes of modern uh, morality, right? But all of this sort of fighting about Columbus and what he represents, and whether he should be honored, and whether. Uh, whether there should be a day dedicated to him. People don't often say, let's change the name of Columbia University or let's change the name of Columbus, Ohio. Everyone seems to be fine with that. But uh, this sort of controversy over Columbus Day, uh, you know, is very far removed from what we know and what we don't know about Columbus himself, right? And how enigmatic uh, he himself was and how, how much... Uh, events since 1492 have really spiraled far out of what Columbus could himself could have imagined. Right? So thank you so much uh, for listening. Again, these uh, lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. I'm going to try to you know, upload more of the most recent ones onto YouTube. And if you like them and want to keep hearing them and hear them you know, keep coming with frequency and quality, please go to my Patreon page. Also under Historian Splaining, the link is in the description. And uh, just contribute whatever you might be able to. It'll be much appreciated and it'll keep this material coming. Thanks.